Welcome to the Tole Lege podcast, a podcast dedicated to encouraging laity and clergy alike to pick up theological books and read them. I'm your host, Father Miles. You can find me on Twitter at the Tole Lege, and always feel free to email me with thoughts and feedback at thetolelege at gmail.com. So since this is the first episode, and perhaps you haven't listened to the introduction episode, which I would encourage you to go back and listen to, but I wanted to give a reminder that as we're looking and talking about books in these episodes, it's my goal is to not offer a book review. I'm not rating books. I'm not really here to critique the ideas, though if I strongly disagree, I'm sure I will. And nor am I here to simply summarize the book to the point that you can forego reading them. My goal is to provide just enough summary and engagement with a book that you too will be inspired to pick up the book and read it for yourself. And so on today's episode, this first episode, I'll be looking at The Monkhood of All Believers, The Monastic Foundation of Christian Spirituality by Greg Peters. It was published in 2018 by Baker Academic. And the basic premise of this book that Dr. Peters argues for is that monkhood is the calling of all Christians, not just those who have professed vows and live in either as either hermits or in cloisters, meaning in monasteries. In Dr. Peter's own words, he says that this book is not a historical look at institutional monasticism, but a constructive project to try to provide the Christian world with a theology of monasticism. A little bit more about Dr. Peters. Father Greg Peters is Associate Professor of Medieval and Spiritual Theology in the Tory Honors Institute at Biola University, as well as Research Professor of Monastic Studies and Ascetical Theology at Neshota House Theological Seminary. He is a priest and rector. He is a priest and rector in the Anglican Church of North America. And so I find it interesting that he is a part of a tradition that historically doesn't have monasticism. I think this is reflected in his thesis uh, throughout his work where he argues that monasticism is rooted not in a special class of laity and clergy, but monasticism properly belongs to all believers. Although it might be called a Protestant impulse in him to decentralize monasticism, I do think after reading the book that Father Greg shows accurately that he is supported by the best patristic, medieval, Roman Catholic modern, and Eastern Orthodox modern scholarship regarding the nature of institutional monasticism and how it relates and is reflected within the wider laity. So with that to the book, the structure of the book is an introduction with three parts. In the introduction, uh, Dr. Peters does offer a short history of monasticism. It's not his primary goal. He has written other books about the history and institution of monasticism, if you're interested in those. But he does have to write this history. And I think the main reason he's writing this history is to expel an all-too-common myth about monasticism. And it's a myth that I was even taught in seminary. And the myth is this, that monasticism was started in the 4th century in response to Christianity becoming legal. So, go back. Constantine makes Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. And now it becomes, you could say, easier to become a Christian. There's no longer persecution. There's no longer a, a severe threat of martyrdom. And so Christians who take their faith very seriously were, were kind of longing to be able to show and prove their love for Christ. And martyrdom was the way to do that. And so rather than being able to literally die, they fled to the wilderness and they became living martyrs, monks, through severe ascetical practices, through living a life totally devoted to God. And so what Dr. Peter's 
shows how is that monasticism, when understood rightly as an orientation of the heart, we'll get to that in just a moment, and vocation to prayer and a life of discipline, that it is something with roots that reach back not to the fourth century, but all the way to the first century, to the very disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's his introduction. The first of his three parts is what is a monk. And I found this part to be the most constructive and the most helpful because in this part, I think he really sets out his primary thesis. If he can show that monkhood, monasticism, isn't something that requires vows and living in a monastery, then his whole project, I think, is set on the right foot. And so Dr. Peter says within this opening section and even in the first chapter, it is not only nor primarily what is on the outside that makes the monk i.e. a habit or living in a monastery, but what is on the inside, that that is the inner life of the monk, not his outward visible manifestation. That is what truly makes one a monk. And so Dr. Peters argues for this idea that a monkhood is more interior than exterior by first looking at the word monk, which comes from the Greek word monachos. And though we're often told in study that the word means alone in the sense that you have to be alone as like a hermit living in the desert or alone in life by not being married and instead living in a monastery, Dr. Peters shows that this isn't how the early church nor the Greek language actually understood the word. It does mean alone, but it means more of the idea of being alone and singular in your focus and devotion towards God. So a better translation might be single-minded. And so to be single-minded towards the Lord can at times mean living in the desert or not being married for the sake of devoting your whole life to the Lord. We can think of Paul. But those aspects are not the central aspect of being a monk of monachos. It is single-minded devotion to the Lord. And he's, as I said, he shows this through word study. He shows this through patristic analysis. And this leads him to then speak of something called interiorized monasticism. It's a monasticism that is inherent to all Christians in light of their baptismal vows. Now, if you're not familiar with baptismal vows or you're in a tradition that doesn't have a baptismal liturgy that's rooted in kind of ancient baptismal liturgy, when one is baptized or a child is brought forward for baptism, the sponsors will say, they'll be asked a series of questions. And one of these questions is, do you renounce Satan? And it can be worded various ways, all the vain and pomp circumstances of the world. Do you turn your back on Satan and give up on sin? That's in essence part of the questions. And and you say yes with the help of the Lord or the sponsors or parents answer for the child, which the child then takes on for himself or herself at confirmation. And so rooted in these baptismal vows, Peters would argue, is the monastic calling, the life of single-minded devotion to God Almighty. One thing that Peters does wrestle with right here is the, the fact that many in church history have elevated the status of celibacy, which is often presented as the epitome of the monastic life, above the vocation of marriage. And so how can you speak of being just simply a baptized Christian who's married and being a monk when a lot of church history has connected monkhood with celibacy? And I think I'll I'll let you read Peter's for yourself, but I do think he makes a good case of showing that while that thought is present in church history and even today, it's not necessarily the only voice or the most prevailing voice at times. And so monkhood doesn't necessarily mean celibacy. 
So that's part one. It's the it's the idea that monkhood is an interiorized, single-minded devotion towards God. The second part is entitled asceticism, the monastic vocation. So asceticism is the duty and calling of monks. This is, of course, what we think of when we envision a monk. It's someone who's fasting, someone who's doing a lot of prayer, someone who is denying themselves and picking up their cross. And if you don't know that word asceticism, that it simply comes from a Greek word, eschesis, which means struggle or training. And it's any activity, physical activity or spiritual activity or mental activity that seeks to discipline the mind, the body, the soul as a way of drawing your you closer in conformity to Christ. And so Paul speaks in in Corinthians about disciplining the body in order that he might reach the goal. And that's asceticism. And so, of course, the history of monasticism is scattered with some pretty unhealthy examples of asceticism. Dr. Peters gives an example of one person who, a monk, an, an, a, a vowed monk, who actually dies at some point in the past because all he eats is raw vegetables and his the guy's stomach couldn't handle it. And so he ends up dying. And so there's this very unhealthy type of asceticism out there. Uh, but I think Peter's argument is we can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. I'll let him speak for himself as he talks about a balanced asceticism for the Christian life. And so if asceticism is the vocation of all monks, and if all believers are monks or share in single-minded devotion to God, then ascetical practices are essential to the discipline and discipleship of every Christian. And this is this might be hard for us to think because most of us probably don't sit around and go, oh, I wouldn't describe my Christian life as being ascetical. But really, asceticism takes place all throughout Christian life. Anytime you deny yourself for the sake of Christ, that's asceticism. And so things like worship, waking up on Sunday morning to go to church is a form of asceticism. Reading the Bible when you could be doing something else, praying, tithing, giving giving alms, helping others in need. All of these can be classified as ascetical practices to some degree. And in built within our worship too, Dr. Peters harps on this point, a liturgical asceticism, the ideas of, of kneeling and bowing and standing and even singing. All of these can be ascetical practices when you don't want to do them, forcing yourself to do these actions, denying yourself that you may be more conformed to the image of Christ. That's asceticism. And so the vocation of monks, asceticism, is actually the vocation of every believer. And it is all rooted in that baptismal vow that you would deny yourself and you would turn away from the world, Satan and all of his pomp, and completely, single-mindedly latch on to Christ. And ascetical practices help both the monk and the lay Christian and every believer in between do that. And so the vocational monk, the one who's actually behind the monastic walls, what he or she is simply doing is is what all believers are called to do, but in a more intentional and unique and sometimes extreme way. If you're not familiar with monasticism, generally it's a pretty rigorous routine of fasting, but also feasting, as well as the seven daily times of prayer. But all of these can be done by lay people. I know lay people who try to keep monastic fasting and who try to follow the seven offices or seven times of prayer throughout the day. The only thing that really keeps the monk unique and special is a lifelong vow to do these things and then a commitment to celibacy. But then again, I know lay people who are single, committed to celibacy, and who live a life of devotion to God Almighty. So the point that Peters is making and that I would agree with is 
There's nothing unique to the monastic vocation that the that a non-monastic Christian can't participate in to some degree. And so this then leads Peters to his third and final section, which he entitles The Monkhood of All Believers. And here's a quote from the beginning of this section. In this book, I have tried up to now to show two things in particular. One, a monk is someone, anyone, who has a single-minded interior focus on God, rooted in her baptismal vows. And two, asceticism, that most monastic of practices, is expected of all Christian believers by virtue of our baptism and is characterized primarily by balance and moderation. And so I think the question that where, where Dr. Peters leaves us with at the end of the book is what does this look like? What does it look like for every believer to be a monk? And he, he ends in his epilogue by quoting from an article that was posted by the Conception Benedictine Abbey, which is here in the United States, and it offers five ways for Christians to live monastic lives. First is to cultivate silence. Two, be faithful to daily prayer. Three, form authentic community. Four, make time for Lectio Divina. If you're not familiar with Lectio Divina, you can read the Wikipedia page. It's pretty helpful. It's a way of spiritually reading scripture so that it turns into prayer as well. So that's number four. And number five is practicing humility. So silence, daily prayer, authentic community, Lectio Divina, and humility. This is what the Conception Benedictine Abbey in the United States says is is ways that the average believer can live out a monastic calling. And it's ways that I believe Dr. Peters is is agreeing with as well. And so that's, in essence, the book. And so my, my takeaways from this book is I really like the project. And I think, as he says in his epilogue, that Protestantism has been impoverished because we've historically taken such a negative, almost nasty, vile view of monasticism. And this somewhat makes sense in the ethos because Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, was a monk and had a pretty awful experience with the monasticism of his day. But can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. I, I think that Peter shows and that time and time throughout history, we see that monasticism has a role, even if it's a bit hard to pin down at times, it has a role in the wider church. And so also when I hear Dr. Peters talk about the average believer being a monk, it really resonates with me because one thing I've said as as well, I too am an Anglican priest. One thing I've said when I'm just talking to people about Anglicanism is that one of the effects of the Anglican Reformation was that all the monasteries were destroyed. And by destroying all the monasteries, it turned the whole nation into one giant monastery. And this is mainly because the liturgy book of Anglicanism, the Book of Common Prayer, sets out two monastic prayer times, morning prayer and evening prayer, matins and vespers, to be prayed daily in every church. And this has become the piety of Anglicanism, that even the lay people, not just the clergy, not just monks, not just bishops, are praying morning and evening prayer. It's a very monastic way of doing spirituality. And so if I can make kind of a shameless plug right here, I think Anglicanism really embodies a piece of this vision that Dr. Peters has. So it doesn't surprise me that he, an Anglican priest, is working on this project. I think that we have within our tradition kind of a 
a sense that the average believer is is monkish, is meant to be single-mindedly devoted to God in these classical ways. And so the Book of Common Prayer also lays out various days that are meant to be kept as fast days and feast days and holy days. And, and then there's prayer and then there's exhortations to confession and examination. So it gives a, I would say, a tampered down, a kind of easier to swallow version of medieval monasticism to the laity as they're spiritual program. And so I like this because when I think of a well-formed Christian, if someone were to walk up to me and say, Father Miles, what does it mean to be a well-discipled, well-formed believer of Christ? I, I would think in these somewhat monastic terms, are you doing morning and evening prayer, which include a heavy dose of scripture reading? Are you going to confession regularly? Are you examining your sins? Are you partaking of the blessed sacrament weekly, if not more? And then are you living in love and charity with your neighbor? Most uh, importantly, your spouse and then your family and then those around you, are you serving the poor. These are all very monastic, ascetical type vocational practices. And so my biggest takeaway then from this book would be, I think that it's calling us to live out our baptismal vow seriously as monks, to take seriously the call to turn our backs on Satan and to struggle like monks do in an ascetical way that sin may lose its foothold in our life and we can live out our calling to be Christ. And I also think the book also then challenges me and and others to take serious the role, the important positive role that institutional monasticism has played in the history of the church and continues to play today. And if you if that idea bothers you, that institutional monasticism has a has a good benefit for the whole church, then I would encourage you to read Dr. Peter's own words about that. There's a lot of other topics that Dr. Peters discusses that I can't get into that might pique your interest. He talks about what a balanced asceticism looks like, a theology of monasticism uh, that is developed from the patristics, from the medievals, from modern scholars, all with an eye of towards its relationship to interior monasticism. He really just harps a lot on classical spiritual formation through spiritual direction, through prayer, through liturgy and the sacraments. And then there's a plethora of so many other topics he discusses. Well, there you have it. Just a few of my thoughts and interactions with The Monkhood of All Believers by Greg Peters. If you like what you heard today, these ideas piqued your interest and were exciting to you, then I would encourage you to get a copy of the book and go. Tole Lege. Pick it up and read. <laughs>